this episode of the PA Path Podcast. I'm your host, Kevin Lohenry, and we are glad you could join us as we seek to better understand the PA profession. We can make a safe place for our students, for all of our students, and they're all going to grow because of that. Well, hello, and thank you for joining us again. Today, we speak with Ms. Grace Landell, who is the 2021 recipient of the PAEA Lifetime Achievement Award. Grace and I talk about her path to becoming a PA, her career in education, and about Toro University's dual degree program in Vallejo, California. Grace also shares her passion for diversity, equity, and inclusion from her role in PA education and in her life as a member of the LGBTQ community which is incredibly timely given this month includes National Coming Out Day and LGBTQ History Month. As always, you can learn more about our guest and about Tor University on our website at thepapathpodcast.com under the blog section for show notes. Well, Grace, thank you so much for joining us today. We're delighted to have you come on and talk about your illustrious career in Toro University's dual degree program. Uh, let's start first with your path to becoming a PA. Can you tell us a little bit about how you ended up in this profession? Sure, and thank you, Kevin, so much for inviting me to do this. It's really an honor. My path is, I think like many people, probably from my era, you know, PA was not the first thing on my list. I actually was pre-vet when I was, well, actually, when I started college, I didn't know what I wanted to do with my life. And I was a biology major, which means I really didn't know what I wanted to do with my life. But I was pre-vet for a few years, actually volunteered at a vet hospital. And, you know, veterinary medicine is actually really difficult to, to get into. But I also thought it was because I didn't like talking to people, which I find very hilarious now. I think everybody who knows me says the same thing. I uh, volunteered at the Santa Cruz. I was, at, I was going to University of California, Santa Cruz, um, which many people at that time said was the hippie trippy school. But I uh, started volunteering at the Santa Cruz Women's Health Collective. So it was women run providing health care for other women in the community. I'm doing self-health groups, things like that. And I worked in the lab, goes on the job training. And then I also was an abortion counselor. So had some background in that. And we had a number of women who were midwives. There was a big thing about home births at that time, because I graduated, I this was I was in college in this in the mid-70s. And so really, you know, the feminist movement, women's health movement, those kinds of things. I had worked there with a PA, which I didn't really think about at the time. But then I went after, after college, again, still not knowing what I was going to do with a biology degree, and was in Oregon, got a job, luckily, with, uh, as a hospital, as a phlebotomist. And was doing that, you know, as again, as the, what am I going to do next with, what am I going to do with my life? And several of my friends were going through the same thing. And so they were looking at um, nursing school. And one of them said PA. And I went, oh, you know, I worked with a PA. And the local community college had this computer program where you could answer a ton of questions. And including, like, do you like working at day, at night, you know, outside, inside, I mean, all those kinds of things. And one of the things that came up on the list again was PA. And I read the blurb, and to me, and I know this sounds so cliche, but it really was a light bulb went off. I really went, oh, this is, this is exactly what I want to do. My mom really wanted me to go to medical school. 
I actually took the MCATs. You know, I did that route, but it was not, my heart wasn't in it. And uh, I read this like, yes, this is it. And so I started applying to PA schools. Actually, I applied to, there weren't that many PA schools at the time. You know, like it was around the, the 50 mark. And I applied to five, had interviews at four, and got accepted at three. And I ended up going to Baylor College of Medicine. And really, one of the reasons was uh, because of when the start time was, because I didn't have a lot of money, and I was supporting myself, and um, I could work two more months. And I figured, you know, those are my books, you know, and maybe maybe one month of, of, um, of rent. So, um, so I ended up going to Baylor College of Medicine. So I went from Eugene, Oregon to Houston, Texas, which was a huge cultural shift. We had, uh, when I, by the time I left Eugene, we had 15% unemployment rates and went to Houston, which was uh, booming, oil boom was going on at that time and a thousand people a month were moving into town. So, you know, started PA school and had, you know, great experience, did some of my rotations in some of the small communities way outside of, of Houston. But then my partner, who, who had moved to, to Texas with me while I went to school, uh, got a job in Nebraska and left during my clinical year because I'm going, really, we're not going to see each other <laughs> in my clinical year anyway. So I went to, went to Nebraska and then tried to find a job. And I ended up in a small town of less than 5,000 people outside of Lincoln, Nebraska, called Seward. Worked, there were three clinics in town. And no, actually, there were two clinics in town and one clinic in another town, but we had a hospital. So we consider ourselves only to be semi-rural. And I worked there for three years. I was the first female provider they'd had in the community. So I did a lot of women's health and just really loved it. Had a great community love my patients, love the people I worked with. And, and I mean, if I could have moved them back to the West Coast, I would still be there. Um, that's how much, <laughs> much I liked it. But, you know, I'm from the West Coast and, and I was in the middle of the country. I mean, the middle, you know, people go, well, there's that river. I go, yeah, and it's not very big in the summertime. <laughs> so, yeah, yeah, very um, different. It's very different. Um, but, uh, and I was also there during the farming crisis when people were losing their, their family farms. So all kinds of things like that. So, but it really gave me a taste of working with people with whole families. I mean, the kids would stop by the hospital to see grandma on their way home from school. You know, there were, there were hours, but there were not the restrictions that you see in urban, in urban settings. And also, the, the whole life cycle, you know, people are born and people die and it's just, you know, it's a part of life. And so I think the grounding that gave me as a, as a family practice PA really has stayed with me the, the, the rest of my life, you know, my rest of my career. It made, made a huge impact on me and made me actually realize how important my, fam my own family is to me. So that was great. But then my partner went back to school again. And so uh, we moved back to the West Coast and the closest. So she was going to grad school in Eugene, back in Eugene. And the closest I could find a job was in Vancouver, Washington. So just right over the border from Portland. So I started sure. working in family medicine there. And that was a clinic that was open every day of the year. And so did you know, the PAs worked. So we were open eight to eight, Monday through Friday, nine to four weekends and holidays. And so got 
you know, again, continue to get a lot of experience, but it was one of those things like, so do I do all these things that I was doing before? Because we know we have people just upstairs from us. You know, if, if we, if when I was in Nebraska, I was in Seward, if we were going to refer somebody, it was, you know, it was an hour. So, you know, it was an hour if by life flight, uh, it was an hour, you know, somebody, they came out from Omaha and picked people up or they send the paramedics out from Lincoln, which was an hour. So no, any way you looked at it, it was an hour. Um, if, we're gonna, if we had to send somebody out of town and if people are going to drive, like, I don't, I don't want to go into the city, right? And so people's also belief systems about this. And wait, so I tore this tendon here and the only thing, if it doesn't heal, my tip of my finger won't bend or, you know, I can't straighten it. Okay. Yeah. yeah farmers <laughs> so, are a totally different population, right? They're, they're uh, incredibly resilient when it comes to those kind of injuries. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, so I, I think I got a really good grounding in family medicine, which I think I brought to my teaching career. So. And Grace, you are currently on a program that has a dual degree with a public health degree as well. So do you think that the community experiences that you had in Nebraska played a big role in your focus on community as part of your health? I, you know, I think so, but it's just always been a part of, of it. And, and maybe it was just from, you know, living there, working there, being on call, people just stopping, you know, like I'm out mowing the lawn and stopping by and go, does my kid have nits? Does they have head lice? Yes. Okay. <laughs> you know, you know, yeah. talking to you in the grocery and, 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 and that could be, you know, it's, it's really hard sometimes to tease out why, why we have our belief systems, you know, so it's, I think mostly from our lived experiences. Right. Right. And, and you also had a chance in family practice to really continue that, that start to your career that you did in, in so many different aspects of women's health when you're up in Santa Cruz too, it sounds like. Yeah. Yeah. Because, you know, even when I was, when I was in Vancouver, we had three clinics, but for a long time, I was still the only female. We had one female provider. Um, one was out in our, in our small clinic in one of the smaller communities. And she was the only provider there, but the quote unquote in town again, for a long time, was the only female provider. And I would bring in, you know, so I would see, I finally just said, you know, like one evening a week, I'm just going to do women's health because yeah. it's just easier. And then, you know, women can come in. It's after work. Somebody else is at home with the kids, you know, those kinds of things. People didn't have to take time off work to come in. And this would have been the time when the PA workforce was flipped, right? Where 70% of the workforce were men, 30% were women, whereas now it's the reverse. That's, that's exactly right. Yeah. So, so you were definitely in demand with that experience and that passion. Yeah. Well, because in the medical profession too, right? Physicians didn't want to do women's health either. You know, and yeah. women want to see women. <laughs> yeah. So you're up in Oregon and how do you end up at MedX? So when this is kind of follows on the women's health thing is I came up for annual review and I said that, uh, you know, I bring in the women to the clinic, to our system. And because they come in, their husbands come in because they make them come in. Right. And they bring their kids in and actually they would sometimes bring their grandparent, you know, their, their parents in. So I would see multi-generational families. So I want to, I want to raise. And literally my supervising physicians in the time said, 
there are disparities, there's discrimination against women, and it's not equal, and we're not going to do anything about it. I said, okay. Wow. And wow. I also, ever since I was in PA school, had thought I wanted to teach sometime down the road. I'd done some teaching before I went to PA school. And I'd always said, I, my best friend in PA school, I'd always tell her, you know, like, when I get burned down on clinical practice, I'm going to teach. She'd go, I just want to be in your brain for five minutes. Because somehow when you come up with some of these analogies, like where do you get them from? And literally about like a couple weeks or maybe a week after we, I had this meeting, you know, about wanting to raise, I saw a job posting at MedEx. And my, again, my partner was still in grad school. I thought, well, here's my chance to try it. I can go up there. I can, I can uh, teach for a few years. And then when she gets out of grad school, we can go, we can see where we want to go. So then, so I applied and I got the job. And at that time, they were paying more than my clinical practice. <laughs> Isn't that <laughs> terrible? Yeah. So, I, I wonder if that, that physician that made that decision ever really thought that through and said, wow, I really screwed that up. Well, when I had my exit interview with our clinic manager and the senior partner, and I told them that, I said, you know, this is really basically why. They said, if you had come to us, we would have done it. And I said, well, wow. but the but the but the hierarchy and you know my understanding, I was I was talking to him, I was interviewing him. So and he was doing the negotiation. Uh, it didn't even occur to me to to go above him. Sure, I'm a rule follower in general. <laughs> 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 me too. That, that keeps us out of trouble. So yeah. So so you're at MedEx, and uh, yeah. this is were you at the Seattle campus at the time or Tacoma? There was only the Seattle campus. Okay. So, um, so I was there. I started out, you know, as a, as a principal faculty member, and then really kind of worked my way through. Um, you know, was in, we had what we call course coordinators because we'd bring in outside lectures for a lot of a lot of things, and um, kind of over my educational career, have been in charge of almost all the courses in a PA program. Never did pharmacology. Um, and um, and then and slowly kind of worked my way up uh, when things came open. So we hadn't had an academic coordinator. Programs were small at that time. When I first started, we had, I think, 25 to 28 students. So not many. But then things started, you know, we started getting bigger, increasing class sizes. And we also, you know, the program director was pretty innovative. And got a grant, and we set up our first satellite in Alaska. Prior to that, though, we'd always had people from the Pacific Northwest, our medical school, the University of Washington Medical School. So they were the medical school for Wyoming, Washington, Alaska, Montana, and Idaho. And so our the PA program actually had a slightly broader reach because there were not PA programs in Nevada and some other states. So we really had students from, from all over. So, but they always said they weren't going to let me go to Alaska because they didn't think I'd come back. But then uh, we had the opportunity to start this program. So I went up to uh, Sitka to be the program director. Howard Straker was one of the faculty with me. That is amazing. Yeah. And we were housemates. Uh, we, we always joke about, you know, Howard and I lived together, right? <laughs> <laughs> and then Steve Gage, who worked for the tribal clinic, they call it Southeast Alaska Health Consortium. So he worked okay. with them. And so, because that was our partner, that was one of our partners. And then the University of Alaska was our third partner. So it was a little health outreach grant. Um, and Sitka is 
Sitka is the location of that famous Ryan Reynolds, uh, Sandra Bullock movie, right? That's correct. Yeah, what a beautiful place. Oh, it's very beautiful. And it's, what's interesting about that and about Alaska, so if you were going to medevac somebody out of Sitka, it's almost equidistant to come to Seattle or to go to Anchorage. Wow. And so um, people would decide where they had more family, when, if they, you know, which, which direction they would go. It's on an island. It's in southeast Alaska. Wow, what an incredible experience that had to be. And, and you know, for those that haven't met Howard yet, we'll, we'll have Howard on hopefully in the future. His boy, Jackie, will be on in a couple of weeks for Duke. You know, talk about six degrees of separation. There's just so many of those kind of stories that we've been learning over the last 15 weeks of the podcast of how each individual has impacted the other. And, and that's just really cool. Uh, Howard, of course, was president of PAEA during the pandemic. So what a great experience that you two shared. Yeah. You know, so we had to set that up essentially from scratch. I mean, we had to do things like figure out, okay, if we're going to do workshops, like how much, how many gloves do we need? How many speculums? How many, I mean, really from scratch. So nowadays, you know, because with all the programs starting up, people are, are much more used to doing that, but but not then. But the idea with with a satellite, so we're now distance campuses, but we called satellites at that time, where you know, you'd go to an area, you would set up shop, you would educate people from that community so they didn't have to move. And then when there were enough people, enough PAs in the area, you could fold up your tent and go home. Or in some places, what's happened is the, the program would become self-sufficient self, um, and stay there. But with Alaska, what happened was we had the second year, the clinical year, the, the goal was that the state would take it over. And then there would be a PIA program up in Alaska. And that didn't happen because of the price of oil had was off and they were closing things, including talking about getting rid of school nurses and things like that. So they weren't going to pick up a new program. So we finished up, came back and you know, just went up to Alaska to site visit students and, and do all those kinds of things. But but that's where that's how it where it ended. But because of that, we then also use that knowledge to start a program, the satellite in Yakima, and then a few years later in Spokane. So we had East and Western Washington State in the, in the middle. So, but that was where the idea where all of those came from. So, and then uh, I became the academic coordinator. So part of my job was making sure that classes were, there was equivalency. Actually, we had course coordinators across you know, all three sites, one person was in charge, we made sure that everything was the same, but we were down to, we had exams at the same time of the same day, you know, all of those kinds of things so that there, so people couldn't say that they weren't getting the same education, not that they couldn't say, but we wanted, we wanted to make sure everybody was getting a great education. Sure. In 2010, you became the director of the Torrey University dual degree program in California. What was the motivation to make that move? Um, two things. So I'd now, you know, I'd, I'd now gone through, been assistant director, associate program director, done all these kinds of things. And it, and it became clear that I was not going to be the program director there. My parents were aging and actually somebody from the Toro program that I knew that I had met at Western Consortium a number of years previously called me and said, hey, somebody said you might be interested in looking for, you know, come to the job. Would you be, would you be interested? So, you know, so I looked it up on the map, right? <laughs> like we all do. But, oh, you know, it's only two hours from my parents. That would be, that would be closer. 
So I actually applied there and I actually also applied for a, a startup program um, on the East Coast and interviewed at both of them. And the mission of the Toro program is very similar to the mission of the Max program. And several years previously, I had actually been interested because I've been kind of interested in being program director and I'd applied for some program director positions, some other places. And at one of them, I didn't get the job. And I was talking to one of our associate deans in the medical school. And he just said, you know, because he had been a commission, an ARC commissioner, and he'd actually done a, a site visit there. And he goes, you know, I actually think it's all to the best because you are really a mission driven person. And I don't think you would have been happy there. And so that was the, you know, sometimes you need that external point spotlight to go, oh, yeah, that's true. And so, you know, I looked at the mission. I'm just going like, this is, I want to do this. So, um, you know, applied, you know, got the job, moved down. And there were some things about the program that I felt like when I came, um, you know, I think one of the reasons why we wanted to become program directors is we have a lot of ideas of, of how things could be. Um, and so, again, that was for me. And what I realized when I came was there were things about the mission that were being said, but not done. And I'm going, no, this is what we're going to do. And so and I think we've got just an incredible faculty, really, who are um, who, who believe in the mission. And really, uh, we work towards that. And I think that shows because last year we got the PAEA uh, Excellence in Diversity. Oh, congratulations. Award. Um, because of our work and our director of admissions just says, you know, everybody says these things at this campus, but you guys actually do it. Um, yeah. so I'm very proud of that. I'm, I'm like, I'm so honored to, to work with the people that I work with and, and really our students are just incredible. So tell us a little bit more about the program. Give us your, your sales pitch. Uh, we're, we're an applicant looking at your school. What are the things that we really need to know? So the first is, I mean, because that, that's a question, because I do information sessions, I do panels, admissions panels and stuff like that, which I really love doing. Well, the Toro program is the only program in, in the country, the only paid program where you're going to also earn a master's in public health. And I really see that we are educating clinicians of the future. You know, with a public health background, two years ago, people didn't know what public health was since COVID. So true. I mean, you, you hear oh, it like how many, five times a day, right? And so yeah. people now, I think, have a much better sense of the, the need for that. And I always tell our students, I'm so jealous they're getting an MPH because, you know, if, you're, if you've been in medicine long enough, I mean, you just, and especially if you're in primary care, you are going to learn public health principles. Mm-hmm. But to learn it from, the, from day one and the theory behind it and all those kinds of things, I mean, that is just so incredible. Plus, which we just have an incredible um, public health program. Uh, we have so our because people can go. There are other PA programs where you can get as a dual degree. You can get an MPH. But our students, every student who comes is going to get an MPH. I always tell people at interview day is if you don't want it and after being here today or after coming to one of our information sessions, you're like don't accept us because you're yeah. gonna get it. <laughs> Sure. Which I sure. think was some of the issues uh, in, in the early years. But so our students have our, our MPH program has three tracks that choose that students choose. Essentially, it's a community track, a global track and a health equity and criminal justice track. 
And if we're not the only public health program that does it, we're one of the few. So really looking at issues around um, the criminal justice system, healthcare system, um, social justice. And so, you know, there's the school to prison pipeline. How do we stop that um, restorative justice? Um, there's the issues of people who are in prison and, you know, like the healthcare there and, you know, the other issues. And then when people get out, how do you keep people from going back? As well as all of the issues of communities that, you know, are impacted by, by huge numbers of the community being in prison. Um, and then we look at, you know, the, the, the you know, the, um, all the racial injustice, et cetera. So, you know, there's all those components. And so, so students can choose that as a track. And the difference, the main difference between the three tracks is just two, essentially two track courses. But where students do their public health field study is also a big, the big difference. So just as in for PA school, uh, students do clinical rotation to apply what they've learned in the classroom. Students do the same thing in a public health field study with their public health education. And so um, students can, can be in a variety of places and really utilize what they've learned, the health equity and criminal justice. They're able to work um, in a variety of areas around that. Also, uh, we do have one of our clinical rotation sites is in the California uh, Correctional uh, Facility. And so students can also do um, a rotation there. So again, what, what percent of your students typically choose those tracks if you had to kind of average them out? So it used to be about when we, because the, the, the health equity and criminal justice track is only a few years old. So prior to that, it used to be about two thirds community, one third global. And now it's, it's about, I don't know how to divide it up, a smaller number in the health equity and criminal justice track. Although I think we may have 10 or 15 students this year. Um, and the, the rest are now, and the rest are evenly divided among the other two tracks. Did that track arise right around the time of George Floyd's murder? Was that kind of the impetus for that, or was it already in process? It, was, it had already been in process, partly with because of interests of our faculty, the, the public health faculty, as well as actually some some requests from people who uh, providers in it who worked in the correctional facilities. Um, wanting to have more of a background, a public health background, because there's a ton of public health issues, obviously. Yeah, in my my PhD program, one of my colleagues was studying. He was a uh, educational specialist at San Quentin. Yeah. And he was studying recidivism rates, and he was looking at it from the perspective of the attitude of the guards. And if the guards were were pro education, and were advocates for for the inmates to to go through an educational program rather than their work they had to do, he found that those inmates, when they left, had a lower recidivism rate yeah. than when he had guards that were kind of anti-education and really gave them a hard time. Yeah. And so, you know, the attitudes of everybody that works, works with inmates is so important and critical based on his research. Yeah, definitely. So we've had our students on their public health side be at San Quentin. And so, you know, just some of the issues that are arisen there. I mean, they have you know, outbreaks of communicable diseases and how do you stop that? And, you know, all kinds of things. Sure. Even in COVID, I imagine the data is really, oh. I mean, sad and interesting at the same time as a healthcare yeah. professional. 
they they definitely they they stopped as as many places did stop taking students. So that was kind of one of the big things our MPH. But but a couple other things we have a really incredible diabetologist who who um, works at Toro. We now have what's called the Dream Team. It's an interdisciplinary diabetes team, and one of our rotations is with for our students is with the Dream Team. So our rotations are are six weeks, but they do that rotation for twelve weeks. Uh, they're always paired, and they do two days a week. They do stuff around diabetes education, diabetes research, those kinds of things, working with patients and also working with the community, et cetera. Um, and then three days a week, they work in clinic. So they're able to be at the same place for three months, um, being able to do both. So they really get continuity there, plus getting continuity both on the public health side, but also on their seeing patients. and. Then we also have a mobile diabetes education uh, center. It's a mobile home where RV goes out and does diabetes testing, classes, um, education, all those kinds of things. And students and interdisciplinary teams of, of students go out on that also. So we have those kinds of outside experiences for students. That's, that's great. Yeah. So, so what do you look for in an applicant at your school? We really want applicants that meet our mission. We're very upfront about that. We have that on our website. We talk about that during interviews. We talk about that in information sessions um, because we really want to increase access to care for under-resourced communities. And we really want to educate people from those communities um, to go back to those communities. And again, very similar. I think some, uh, some other folks that you've had on have said similar kinds of things, but you know, the research shows people go back to their communities and patients you know, more interested in seeing people and, li- and will listen to people who look like them, sound like them or have shared experiences. Right. And so that's what we look for. And I and we we do a pretty good job. I mean, when um, when you look at diversity, we really look at it's not just underrepresented minorities, but it's also people who come from disadvantaged backgrounds. Uh, people are from under-resourced communities. You know, people have had those experiences. And so people can say, I want to work in a rural community. Have you ever worked there? Have you ever lived there? What's your experience? I want to work in primary care. But I look at your application and you've done CV surgery, worked in dermatology. And so one of the part of our mission is that you have a demonstrated commitment to doing this. And that's where people show that is where they've worked or their community service. So we don't require community service as a prerequisite, but that's sometimes how people can demonstrate that, right? Because sure. you've worked worked as a tutor, you know, you volunteer in an after-school tutoring program and you've done that for years. Maybe it's an hour a week or two hours a week, but you've done that for a long time. You know, you've worked at the food bank, you've, you know, volunteered in the food bank or whatever. You know, it always was uh, amusing to me when I would see people's applications and they had no community service up until, oh, let's see, when did they decide to apply to PA school? And then they started looking and go, oh, all these schools want me to have community service. And then they start volunteering. You know, exactly. and sometimes it's because they can't, right? They have a family, they're taking school. But I think other people have said this too, but you explain that in your personal statement, right? And say, yes. Well, yeah, that's a that's a really great observation and something we see as well. Yeah. You have had a long-standing passion for diversity in your career. You have been an advocate in so many communities. You were a member of the Minority Affairs Committee. 
uh, and many other things. Can you talk a little bit about what has driven that for you? Um, you know, this is another one of those I looked at I'm going, I don't know, it's just the right thing to do. Right. So I think maybe some of it has to do with, you know, where I've worked, where I actually I went to school uh, growing up. I um, so I'm biracial and which, you know, I, I just heard a, I read a good article about it recently. It's like I'm a white passing Asian. You know, like no one would ever guess that. I've been like I've, I've had people insult me for the race they thought I was, which meant it went over my head because I didn't catch it. (laughs) Wait a minute. I think they just tried to insult me, but, (laughs) but, um, but where, but I grew up in, in, you know, I grew up in Altadena, California, but you know, there wasn't, there was just an elementary school there. And so we were bused for, for integration. So we were the first mandated busing for, um, for integration country. So this was in the, in the seventies, I guess, late sixties, early seventies. And so my brothers and I went to four different junior high schools uh, because wow. of that. And then one of there was a new high school that was built because they didn't want to be a part of it um, so that they didn't have to do that. And the high school we went to was pretty, you know, it was like almost one fourth Hispanic, black, white, and Asian, you know, mm-hmm. almost equal, which is very interesting because Vallejo has very similar demographics. It's a very ethnically and racially diverse community. So I think it was just always kind of just was, right? And then just, you know, as I continue to move along through my career, just seeing the injustices that occur. And, and really for me, you know, because of, of my, my generation, the uh, same issue for women, uh, discrimination against women. So, um, and that, you know, that's just not right. You know, people should be treated the same. And so... <laughs> So it's been an it's been an easy thing to to spend your time and energy on. Oh yeah, I mean it's just yeah, everybody should be doing it. Yeah, as long as I've known you, it's been a long time now. I think we've we've had some amazing conversations, and you have given me so much of your time and and gifted me so much of your knowledge around the LGBTQ community. And I wonder if we could talk a little bit about that. You know, coming out day is coming up here on October tenth, and I think the the challenges for for students from that community in terms of navigating PA applications, you know, whether to be out or not, it's such a personal and and such a, a terribly challenging topic for some families. And and from a PA education perspective, how do we how do we set the tone for students from that community to to welcome them? Um, how do we educate all students about the challenges in that community related to health disparities? The higher levels of suicide, how do, how do we get to a place where we can normalize things so that, again, getting back to your point of equality, that, that everybody is equal? You know, I, I think it's difficult. I think that faculty need more education and we all need to face our own biases, right? Which we don't necessarily know we have until they're challenged. Uh, because I think this is actually the same thing with, with any group of under-resourced community. Same thing for our first-generation students, same thing for our students that are like inner city kids, you know, their experience is different than probably the majority of faculty. And so, um, so first you have to know, we have to know we have our biases and then we have to actively recognize and, and work on them, which is difficult, right? 
And so, and so making, making places welcoming communities for everyone, veterans, now men, right? Because <laughs> we don't have very many right. communities. Right. But some ways, I mean, I've been lucky, I think really lucky in my life. My, my classmates when I was in PA school were very welcoming, but, you know, people were less out then, more gender conforming in look, dress. And so it's the how do you, how can you be true to yourself and how you want to be and how do you want to quote unquote pass, I guess. Um, I had somebody, you know, but the flip side, I had somebody one time tell me, oh, you know, you, uh, you're dressing, you're dressing straight. And I'm going, well, you know, I feel like when I go to the East Coast, I'm dressing East Coast. You know, I'm, I, I can I can wear the costume, <laughs> she would put it. Yeah. You know, I can wear a skirt, and, and uh, you know, but I don't have to. And so part of it, I think, is also being comfortable with yourself and, and how you present. You know, I think there's really some generational differences here, too. The students I know now, the kids I know now, they're just more out there. I mean, I just really admire them. They are just out there. I'm like more power to you because yeah. <laughs> I, in some ways, still can't do some of that, uh, and I and I recognize that. But I think for students who are questioning or students who are really out, I think it's you know ask the question: What's your experience with gay students? What's your experience with transgendered students? I think what's your experience with black students? What's your experience with veterans? Because if you don't like their answer or it seems wishy-washy, or, well, we have, we've had one, you know, don't go there. You know, you don't want to be the token because uh, unless you really want to, you know, fight that battle. But I've found that sometimes people come out when they're in school, sometimes they're not. To me, it's just a part of me. So I just like, you know, you can accept me or you're not going to, and I'm just going to move on, right? There's the yeah. there's a 10% irritation factor, right? You're going to piss off 10% of the people. Maybe it's a smaller percent, but, you know, and they're just not going to let you for, because they don't like the color of your hair or the way you talk or whatever, and you're not going to change their mind, so just move on. But that's a hard one, you know, because, you know, we're human. Are there things that you, you do as a program to mm-hmm. signal that all are welcome, everybody matters? Yeah, I mean, we, we, we talk about that. Actually, one of the other things that like, I have a slide that we talk about both at interviews and at information sessions that, you know, here's why you want to come to our program. And so another one of them is that we have all our students are safe zone trained. So that is an educational program to um, learn how to, um, you know, learn about the LGBTQ community, um, how to talk to people, the depending on how who's doing it. I mean, seeing some of the challenges the community faces. I actually learned some of this again at PAEA. I remember the first talk I went to and about the lesbians who weren't getting health care because of the discrimination they had faced and, you know, didn't want to get a mammogram and didn't want all of these kinds of things. And I was just shocked going, this is wrong. You know, we yeah. need to be providing everyone with the best care we can. Um, we have to, you know, check our judgments at the door and provide people with excellent care. But, you know, yeah. some of that is you need to know what your, you know, what your biases are. Yeah, and I think, I think for me, growing up, the more people that I've become friends with and, and interacted with and professional colleagues from a wide variety of diverse communities, 
the more everything seems the same. They're they're just really good people in every walk of life. And you just got to open up your eyes and your ears and your heart. Yep. And and I think, and that means, you know, it, but it's hard, to, you know, it's hard to challenge yourself. And I tell the students, you know, you're not going to, what you learn in PA school, not, you're going to learn a lot of medicine, but you're going to also learn about yourself. And personal growth is not always comfortable, but we're going to challenge you while you're here. And I, I'm just going to share a story that one of our stu- one of my students told me, one of my, my graduates, he said that he was so he was from Oklahoma and he came to Maddox and he said he, he called me. And I think he was partway through his clinical year and called me just to tell me and to thank me for the education he'd gotten because he was a single dad. His daughter was the most important person to him. She was, she was still, I think, in high school um, when he started school. And, and so she was living with his mom. And he came home for a break. And she came out to him. And she told him that she was never going to come out to him. Her, her, his mom knew, so her grandma knew. But because she didn't think he would accept her. But because of going to Medex, he was a much more accepting person. And she felt like he was going to accept her. And he said that to realize that there was this wedge that had been between them that he didn't even know about and was not allowing him to get to, to really know her and what was doing with him was devastating to him. And so he was so happy that he made a change that he didn't even realize that he had made. And I yeah. think that's something for PA educators, that that's something that we can we can make a safe place for st- our students, for all of our students, and they're all going to grow because of that, right? They're gonna yeah. they're gonna because they challenge one another, sure. and again, you get to know somebody, and then you go, oh, well, so I'm gonna, you know, my partner's gonna come with me, and then you go, oh, you, you have a same sex partner, oh, oh, but you're still the same person, right? Mm-hmm. And so people's beliefs get challenged. And, and um, Terry Scott talked a little bit about this in one of your prior podcasts about we need that diversity in the schools. We need that diversity. Um, so we challenge one another because um, that's how we accept one another. Yeah, I, I absolutely agree. And I think that's a, that's a great way to, to end our session. Grace, I, I, there's so much more we could talk about. You have done so many incredible things in your career as a PA. And I know you recently stepped down as the program director and, you know, kind of moving into a new phase of your educational life. And I've always been such an admirer from afar and have enjoyed our conversations, many which occurred with uh, California grant meetings. And um, I thank you for your time and for your willingness to share and be, be uh, open about everything in your life. It's really a testament to who you are. And I look forward to our future conversations. Thank you so much, Kevin. This has really been a pleasure. What an honor to speak with Grace right after she received the PAEA Lifetime Achievement Award. This award recognizes PAs that have given of themselves to the profession for a very long time, and that is certainly the case for Grace. Her contributions to our profession are too numerous to even begin to discuss in the podcast, but you can learn more about Grace and about Tor University at our website. We certainly wish Grace the very best as she begins to dial back into a semi-retirement and step down from her role as program director. And we wish the Tory University PA School the very best in their upcoming year. Tune in next week when we speak with Mr. Brian Peacock, the program director for the Wake Forest School of Medicine PA program in Winston-Salem, North Carolina. 
We speak with Brian about the rich history of leadership at Wake Forest, their focus on inquiry-based learning for the curriculum, and about Brian's thoughts on how they are preparing their students for the future of medicine. Until next time, we wish you success with whatever path you are walking in life, and thank you for joining us. The purpose of this podcast is to provide news and information on the PA profession and is for informational purposes only. The views and opinions expressed in this podcast are those of the speakers and guests and do not necessarily reflect the official position or policy of the University of Southern California.